We ask you to bless this time as we look at your word. We ask you to guide and lead us and let us see what you would want us to see from this section. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Job chapter 5, Eliphaz continues his speech to Job. Uh, in the chapter 4, he was basically saying that uh, uh, bad things don't happen to good people. So Job, you've had to have done something wrong. At the very end of the previous chapter, because this one continues his speech, so we have to kind of lay the foundation. On chapter verse seven, he said that uh, shall mortal men, you know, be better than their than the maker. Uh, verse eighteen said, yet God does not trust in his servants, the angels. Uh, verse eight nineteen says, God doesn't trust in man either. <laughs> and then verse uh, verse uh, twenty, he said, all perish. And then verse 27, uh, 21, he said, there's no wisdom. So I just want to leave his argument there because he built his argument. And this is one of those places where a chapter break is kind of bad news because he's not finished with his argument. And verse 1 continues his argument. So here we are in chapter 5, verse 1. Call now if there be any that will answer you. And to which of the saints will you turn? For wrath kills the foolish man and envy slays the silly one. I have seen the foolish taking root, but suddenly I cursed his inhabitation. His children are far from safety, and they are crushed in the gate, neither is there any to deliver them. Whose harvest the hungry eat up, and takes it even out of the thorns, and the robber swallows up their substance. Although affliction comes not forth from dust, neither does trouble spring up out of the ground. Yet man is born to trouble as the sparks fly upward. I would seek unto God, and, and unto God would I commit my cause, which does great things and unsearchable, marvelous things without number, who gives rain upon the earth and sends waters upon the field to set up the high, those that be low, and those which mourn may be exalted safely. He disappoints the devices of the crafty, so that their hands perform, cannot perform their enterprise. He takes the wise in their own craftiness, and counsel of the forward he is carried headlong. Um, I'm going to stop there. There's a lot to go over. I haven't really finished his argument. So In this, he says, call if there be any that will answer you. To which of the saints will you turn? He goes, he's basically challenging them. He goes, Will any of these people that are all weak, you know, the, this argument that we're all weak, will any of them answer you, number one, Job? And if they did, would they even be able to stand up to God? So this is kind of, you almost hear the irony in what Eliphaz is saying. He's saying, Job, you know, you, you have to have done something. And this is what this whole argument has done. You know, God does not do bad things to good people. You've had bad things happen to you, really bad things happen to you, therefore, you are a really bad person. And you know, this, is, this is very clear logic from his point of view. Now the only problem is that his first statement is false. You know, number one, that bad things don't happen to good people is a false statement. And from there he makes bad decisions and conclusions. And this is the problem I've dealt with many people who go, here's point A, point B, therefore C. And it's generally a good thing. As long as A and B are true, then C is probably true. 
The only problem is so many times when people make these arguments, A and B aren't true, therefore C is not true. And we need to be careful about this. Our whole weekend has been on this whole idea of how many times does evolutionary science lay out this long argument with a whole bunch of lies and then come up with a conclusion that is not valid. So this is his statement. He goes, who are you going to call on? He says, for wrath kills the foolish. And this, and this word for foolish, one who mocks when guilty. So this idea of foolishness, he's accusing Job. Job, you're mocking God because you are guilty. You're saying you're not guilty. You are mocking God. So his argument is he's attacking Job. When Job says, I'm innocent, I haven't done anything bad enough to, de to deserve all of this, Eliphaz is saying, Job, you're, you know, you're just mocking God. You're mocking God. And, and then he goes, and envy slays the silly one. And this is kind of an interesting word because envy does not really mean envy like we're normally thinking of, but it goes enthusiasm will slay the silly one. And the word for silly one is open-minded, naive. And it's kind of interesting because how many people that are very simple and naive get very enthusiastic until somebody challenges them and they have no answers? And I love this because there's a very interesting problem going on in our world and we're being told all the time, well, you Christians need to be more open-minded. Quit being so narrow. And you know, there is a little bit of truth in the fact that we need to be open-minded, but we can't be so open-minded that our minds spill out and you know, get filled in with anything. They're going to be very closed-minded. They're not going to listen to us at all, but we have to be open-minded to, to listen and not argue with anything they say. And there's a problem when they come that way. Yes, I, I will talk to people. I will listen to them, but I expect when I've listened to them that they're going to listen to me. All right, when I, when I tell them what God says. And if they're not willing to, then I just kind of just, okay, it's over with. We're not talking anymore <laughs> and go from there. And the problem is that when we are so open-minded, we will have our faith destroyed. We will have all of this stuff. And here, uh, Eliphaz is basically telling him, Job, you need to open your mind a little bit because uh, your enthusiasm for what you believe is, is not good. You know, so this is an attack on Job. Job, you're so narrow-minded, you're not willing to look at what God, your foolishness, is, you're mocking God. Uh, and you got to think about this. How would you feel if the person was trying to correct you and everything you say they're not listening to and they're accusing you of not being, being right and not willing to even give your position the time of day? And this is what Eliphaz is doing. He goes, I have seen the foolish, or those who, who mock when guilty, taking root, but suddenly, it says, or surprisingly, they break down their inhabitation. And it says here, cursed, but it means break down. And this is something Jesus taught this, that the foolish man builds his house upon the sand. The house looks beautiful, but it has no foundation. And this is what Eliphaz is saying. You know, Job, something's wrong with your foundation. You know, you're being very foolish. You're not, you know, I've seen the foolish build these great big buildings and their edifices and their positions, and then it all breaks down. 
Now this is a good point that Eliphaz is making. If you're truly a foolish person who is building up your, your uh, position on foolishness, it's going to fall down. But him calling Job all of this is not, is not right. And this is where we see the arguments that these guys make over and over again. They sound good. There's, there's just enough truth in their statements a lot of times to sound like they know what they're talking about. And we need to be very careful that when we give counsel that it is good, solid, godly counsel and not things that just what we think we see. And we, want, we need to be very, very careful about this because sometimes we think we see something like these guys. They're going, Job, you know, obviously as bad as things are, you have, you have done something terrible. That was their doctrine. You know, bad things don't happen to good people. Therefore, if bad things are happening to somebody, they must be bad. And Job is saying, I haven't done anything to deserve this. And they're saying, well, Job, you're lying. You know, we know that this is not true. Now, where they got their doctrine from, I don't know, because it's not a biblical doctrine, not that they had the Bible at that time. But, you know, we do see that the rain falls on the just and on the unjust. Good things happen to good and bad people. Bad things happen to good and bad people. All, it all depends on what God allows to fall. This is not Eliphaz's position as he's going through this. Um, and he goes, by the way, these people that are foolish, their children are far from safety. They are crushed in the gate. Neither is there any to deliver them. So it's going, and this is a true statement. Our children will suffer for our mistakes. You know, as parents. All right. Um, I know this for a fact because there was a time that I was disobedient to God and God was trying to get my attention. And, and it wasn't just me who suffered. As God was trying to get my attention, my wife and my kids all suffered because God was trying to get my attention and I was so stubborn I wasn't going to listen. And in this case, Job hasn't done anything wrong and his kids still suffer. Well, they went, they all died. <laughs> I, don't know, I don't know if they went to heaven or not because if <laughs> he's given sacrifices for them. He was afraid that they weren't worshiping God that good. But we'll assume that they went to heaven. Uh, but they suffered. And in their case, they didn't suffer because of Job's problems. They suffered because God let Satan take their lives. And, you know, this is, some, this is the only part of this whole story that I don't fully understand. You know, why would his children be allowed to have their lives taken for Satan to make his point? <laughs> and that's the only part of the story that, you know, I understand him losing his wealth and being given back and losing his health and having it given back. But to lose his children is a little, little bit harder to understand. You know, to lose, yeah, all, all in, one, in one fell swoop. You know, uh, that one's a little harder to understand, but God has his reasons. What they are, I have no idea. It could very well be that his children were cursing God in their celebrations and we're getting, we're getting you know, bad and everything. So God says it's time to, for them to be taken out. We don't know. We don't know enough about his children. We just know that Job made sacrifices for them because he thought they might have cursed God. Maybe they were disobedient. Maybe they weren't even close to following God. We don't know. And it's like I say, this is just the hardest one I have, is his children suffer because Satan says, let me make life miserable for Job. 
And God says, okay, you can make life miserable for Job. And in that miserable part, his children suffer or are taken. Are taken. Why? I don't know. That, that's the hardest thing I have about the whole thing of the, that happened to Job. And I don't know. Maybe his kids were really, really bad. I don't you know, we don't know what God was doing. And this is the hard thing when people go, well, why did my child have to die before I did? Or why did this innocent person have to die? And the answer is, we don't know. God had his reasons for it, or has his reasons for it. And we may never know what those reasons are. And we will drive ourselves crazy trying to figure them out. And this is the one thing. There are things that happen to us to our families, to friends, that we will never fully understand. And too many people will, will ask, well, why did such and ha such happen? Why did God do such and such? I have no idea. I don't even know why he did half of what he did to the people in the Bible sometimes, to suffer something because God decided you're going to suffer something. You know, and the thing we have to fully understand is when God allows something to happen to us, he understands the end game. He understood where they might have ended up and took them out early. He understood what Job needed to have happened to, to, to help him understand. You know, who knows? You know, I've shared with you the time I had my attack for six months of gout and didn't know why and found out later it was so somebody else could watch and be encouraged. Now, Yes, that makes me feel good after the fact. It sure did make me feel good while I was having the gout attack. But it did say, okay, God, now I see why you did it. When we get to heaven, we'll understand why God did what, we, what he did in our lives because we'll see it more completely. We'll see it from his side instead of our side. And that'll be good. And we'll know one thing we know if we really learn to trust God is whatever he allows to happen is what we would have chose if we knew everything. And that's the hard for us to understand because when we're going through it, we think we know everything, but we don't know what's gonna happen in the future. We even don't know everything anyway. But if we knew what God knows, then we would choose exactly what he allows to have happen to us. Because that's what he does. He gives us what is best. Once we go to heaven, we probably won't have a big need to not near as much as the need because it won't matter. It won't matter because we'll have had our rewards and it'll be long over. But at that time, God will show us the rewards that we got for going through whatever it is we went through. So, and I think, you know, that's a good point because how many people, I've heard so many people, when I get to heaven, I'm going to ask God why this, why that. And I'm going, you know, I don't think you're going to care when you get to heaven. You're not going to care why when you get to heaven because you're in heaven. Well, I'm sure you're just not going to care. It's not going to matter. It's not going to matter once you get to heaven. I mean, if it really, really matters, God will let you answer, ask it. But I don't know that it's going to care at that point. When I get to heaven, I'm going to ask God. I'm going to tell God off. Yeah. I've heard people actually say that. I'm going, you are nuts. Yeah. You know, when you get to heaven, you're going to realize that God had the perfect plan for you. And you're not going to tell him anything. Verse 5 says, Whose harvest the hungry eat up and take it even out of the thorns, and the robber swallows up their substance. So here he's going, you've lost you know, these people that are 
foolish talkers. Their children are far from safety. They're crushed in the gate. There's nobody to deliver them. He says their very harvest is taken from them. Kind of attacking Job, I think, at this point, because Job's lost his kids. He lost his harvest. He lost all of his property. And he says, even taken out of the thorn. So, you know, if you remember the picture of their, their farmers in those days, they would stand in the middle feet, you know, and the sides of the field and just throw out grain. And a lot of the, a lot of the grain would end up amongst the thorns. He goes, some of the grain would grow in the thorns. They wouldn't worry about it. He goes, you lost all of your harvest. Even that stuff that you could have salvaged from the thorns is being taken. So he's saying you're going to be totally devastated. And the robbers swallow up their possessions. You know, the, and here the idea is uh, trample all of their wealth. The, the robbers trampled their wealth. So it's not just robbers, but it's everybody. And a lot of their wealth was in their produce and all of that. So he says, they're going to go through your fields, trampling them down, and there's not going to be anything for you. So the, the, all these poor people are eating all, the, all of this product. You know, it's basically saying you're going to be devastated. And again, what has just happened to Job? He's lost his family. He's lost his, all of his... Uh, oxen and his camels and his sheep and his goats and you know I don't know if he lost his you know produce you know if he had farms if he lost all that he probably did and so here he's going through all of these things and verse 6 says and although affliction comes not forth from the dust neither doth trouble spring up out of the ground yet man is born for trouble as the sparks fly upward now, this is kind of a very interesting statement. And I'm really not sure that I fully agree with it. And this is one of the things we're going to have to remember in Job. Not every statement in Job is a valid statement. All right? Uh, he is saying, first off, that bad things just don't pop up out of the ground. Good, good statement. You know, they're brought about by our actions, by uh, satanic attack, or by God allowing allowing it to happen so uh, so it is a true statement you know things just don't magically happen so this is a good statement but then he says man yet man is born to trouble now I kind of understand this we are born sinners so therefore we will have trouble especially without God you know being submitted to God and watching him but this is kind of an argument against what he's been saying. If man is born to trouble, then when bad things happen to them, there is no reason to be surprised. And yet he's telling Job, good things, uh, bad things don't happen to good people. You know, so he's making now an argument that is not valid with that argument. He's going, bad, you know, men, men are born for trouble. You know, so it's kind of an interesting statement. He's lost track of his argument, I think. Have you ever argued with somebody and then they start doubling back on themselves and start talking about something that makes no sense to their argument? Uh, and this is where he's kind of coming. He goes, bad things don't happen to good people, good, good people, Joe, but by the way, bad things happen to people. Now, it could be that he's thinking that most people are not good, all right, which is a true statement. And then he says, you know, all of these bad, man is born as the sparks fly upward. That's kind of an interesting picture. If you've ever been at a campfire or something and you watch the sparks flying up from the, 
when the wood pops and all of that, and you can see all the sparks flying up there, which in our day and age we're not supposed to allow happen because it might start fires, but it's been done for millennia. But he says, all of these things are happening. He goes, people are going to have problems. And this goes opposite of everything he said for a chapter and a half <laughs> as he goes forward. And it says, verse 8, I would seek unto God, and unto God would I commit my cause, which does great things and unsearchable, marvelous things without number. So he goes, I would seek, seek God. Well, he didn't seem to seek God in this discussion. <laughs> he goes, I'm going to seek God, and I would commit my cause. So Siri is saying, well, when bad things happen to me, I would go seek God and I'd commit my cause. Well, that's exactly what Job's been doing. God, what's going on? I don't understand. It's what Job is going to do all through the book. God, I do not understand. I'm committing it to you. And Eliphaz is saying, that's what I would do. But he's not allowing Job to do that. He has already judged Job guilty. Job, you are guilty. You have done bad things because if you were not a bad person, all this stuff would not happen. Job has been committing his cause to God and doing just what Eliphaz said he would do, and yet he's not allowing it to be valid for Job. I find it very interesting that people do this. But the other thing that I'm finding interesting is people attack others for things that they do, which makes me wonder, is Eliphaz doing the, you know, just sending to Job and accusing Job for things that he would have done. You know, all people that tend to lie, you know, be habitual liars believe that everybody lies. And I've heard them many times. Well, why were you like, well, everybody lies. Why did, you, why did you steal that? Well, everybody steals. This happens over and over in our world. I'm wondering if Eliphaz had a problem with being totally honoring to God and knew that he had things taken from him that he deserved to have taken away. And this is his argument. And then he says, I would commit to God who does great, unsearchable, marvelous things without number. Now this is a true statement. And he should be understanding this. He goes, when he sees what's happening to Job, he should be able to apply this that God, number one, does unsearchable things. Things that cannot be fathomed by us, that are difficult to understand. Yeah. And this is what I've said. So many times we question God, why God did you allow something to happen? Mostly because he does things that are unsearchable to us. We cannot understand that. Marvelous Oh, I love this idea. Marvelous, difficult to understand, wonderful things that God does. If he would have just applied these things to Job's situation, Job could have been comforted. Job, we don't understand this, but we know that God's ways are unsearchable. We understand that he does wonderful things, and we can't wait to see how you're going to be blessed for this. Our, our verse for us in our day is, Romans 8.28, but they don't have Romans 8.28 back in. They don't, you know, and remember, this is written during the time of Abraham. There's no written Bible at this point. They just know what they know from experience from Adam 
to this period of time. Brings up a good point. Early on here in the translation, they uh, call out saints. They knew about saints. Mm -hmm. We've talked about this. This book has been attacked a lot because of the advanced theologies in the book. Their understanding of God is so high that people go, well, people were stupid back then, so there's no way they could have the theology that Job has, so it cannot be a book from Abraham's time period. It is, it is amazing to us because the theology in this book is you know, kind of bent in some places, but it is very strong. So, all through like the uh, Old Testament, they didn't have a Bible. Not until sometime during the Exodus when, when Moses wrote the Pentateuch. Now, we don't know where in the Pentateuch, where he wrote it. But before that, we want to remember that Adam and Eve walked with God and they were instructed by God. He told them that blood was necessary for the, you know, for the, for the sacrifices by giving them the example of slaying the animal and giving them skins. So what all was given to, to Adam and Eve, we don't know fully, but we know how well-developed theology is early on. And we have no idea what, number one, Adam and Eve were probably smarter than any of us because their DNA had not been, been stripped away and they probably used a lot more of their brains. Uh, they lived a lot longer. And God spoke directly with them. Uh, and we don't know fully how, how long it took, you know, because if you listen to the world, man was stupid, didn't know anything, didn't know how to talk, didn't know anything about fire, didn't know anything about the wheel, didn't know anything about technology, and they had to be stupid, and it took them thousands and thousands of years to learn all of these things. Look at the Bible, and very quickly, Cain's children, within three generations, are already doing brass and metalwork and creating instruments, and we didn't relearn all that stuff until way after the, after the flood of Noah, it was several hundred years before we relearned all of that stuff that they already did. So how much did God teach them? How much did God give them? What kind of advanced information did those guys have? There was no period of time when man was stupid. But again, we've just had this whole thing about how we presume th certain things and, and all of this. And Job has always had, the, the book of Job has always had problems because people go, well, they were too smart, too advanced. They knew too much. Their, their theology was way too advanced for, for the stupid and ignorant people back in those days. And this is the sad thing is, and I've said this many times, we need to be very careful because we want need to understand that people were not stupid in the early, matter of fact, they were probably smarter than we are. Now I think about all the scientific discoveries that have come along and how they have made these, you know, how did these guys figure some of these things out that they figured out you know, is amazing. If you study history, we have relearned technology over and over and over again. It's amazing because every time a civilization would fall, the barbarians would think that it was magic and, and stuff and they would destroy everything that they had. And then they had to relearn all of the technology. Uh, the ancient Egyptians had indoor plumbing and, and basic batteries and everything that we're finding out. And then it was destroyed. And then the Greeks did it in the Assyrians. All these different places developed all this technology and then it would be wiped out. 
And it really wasn't until very late in history that we started keeping knowledge and, and gaining ground. And you know, this is so interesting because we look at the astronomy and everything, and ancient people knew the world was round. They knew the size of the Earth. The Greeks did. The Romans did. You know, the Egyptians did. All these people knew this stuff, and we're finding different pieces to tell us this. It would be destroyed by the next nation that wiped them out, or almost all totally wiped out. And you know, and we in our day are arrogant enough to believe that nobody has ever understood anything that we've we know. And they may have not known it quite as well as we have without losing it, but they knew a lot. They knew how to use basic electricity. They knew how to use and you know get get pumps and all this stuff going on. And you know, we in our arrogance think that they were stupid. Verse 10 says, who gives rain upon the earth and sends waters upon the field to set up the high, those that be low and those that mourn may be exalted. So he says, God sends rain on the earth and he sends the waters. Now, he's very close to what we're going to read later on in the Bible, that God sends the rain on the just and the unjust. And, but he understands that all of this stuff comes from God and God is in control. He's not quite to the full capacity that good and bad get this rain but he says it's God who sends it he understands those in, and he says he sets on high those that are low and, and those that mourn are exalted to safety so he says God is the one that blesses all these people he exalts and he humbles and basically he's basically coming to the conclusion that Job uh, because you are now made low means that you didn't deserve what you had and God has put somebody in your place and this is his whole argument he goes as he's going forward he goes you're mourning but you're not being exalted so something's wrong his conclusions are wrong he says he disappoints the devices of the crafty so that their hands cannot perform their enterprises you know and this word for disappoint here is the idea that he frustrates. Frustrates. He frustrates the devices or the thoughts and purposes of the crafty so that their hands cannot accomplish what they're trying to do. Now, there's a lot of truth in that statement. God generally protects his people from those that are trying to hurt them. But it is not an absolute statement. His, his is an absolute statement. God will not let bad things happen to you by the by the individual. Well, let's tell that to David when Saul's trying to kill him everywhere he goes. But it is true that God frustrated Saul every time he went after David. You know, something would happen to keep him from being able to conquer. He was unable to. He could not get David all the way. God would keep getting in his way. And it wasn't David who always did it. David sometimes did some things that got himself really in trouble and got himself pinned down a couple of times. One time he was totally pinned down and God started a war someplace else and Saul had to go defend Israel and leave David alone. Uh, but David was in trouble. He had no way out. He was in between two, two branches of Saul's army and, the, and Saul got a message that the Philistines had attacked him and he took off. But he was ready to kill David and God says, no, you're not going to do that. I'm going to frustrate your plans and this is a very true statement that God will frustrate if he does not want us totally hurt or totally killed God would frustrate will frustrate the plans of our enemies 
sidetrack them, move them aside, make it that they cannot accomplish what they are trying to accomplish. Now, sometimes we would be more happy if God would make a little less <laughs> trouble for us. But, uh, you know, David, I'm sure, could have said, God, could you keep Saul away a little longer or a little more? You know, I'm, I'm tired of running every time I turn around. Uh, you know, could you just give him a little more frustration? But it didn't work out that way. But God did frustrate him enough that he did not conquer. He did not overcome David. And this happens to us over and over. And this is kind of what Paul was saying when he says, all these light afflictions are nothing compared to the glory to come. He says, God, I'm paying attention to something else. You, you're going to frustrate them, and I'm going to get everything you want done, done. And you're going to, maybe life is going to be miserable, maybe it's going to be hard, but you're in control. You're going to frustrate the enemy. You're going to make things difficult for them. He says, he takes the wise in their own craftiness, and counsel of the forward is carried headlong. He captures or seizes the wisdom of their, in their craftiness. It is very funny when you listen to people who want to do wrong things, and they'll tell you they had this perfect plan. I like, you know, sometimes the prisoners will come, well, I had this great plan, and, you know, this person dropped the ball. You know, and otherwise, we'd, I would not be here if that person hadn't dropped the, dropped the ball. They didn't pay attention well enough. Uh, they didn't do their part. It had nothing to do with me doing something wrong. It had them, everything with them not doing their part in the, in, the, in the process. And God says, in their own craftiness, their own wisdom, they are taken. And that is a pretty much a true statement on here. Uh, it says, the counsel of the forward or the twisted is carried headlong. They, they rush forward in it. All right? And have you ever tried to talk somebody out of doing something that is you know, stupid or bad, and they are absolutely sure that they're going to do it and get away with it? I'm going to do it anyway. Maybe we've argued with our own self on doing something that was stupid and saying, I really shouldn't do this. I really shouldn't do that. I'm going to do it anyway. Yeah, and this is what he's saying on all of this. <laughs> All right, now from where I haven't stopped you. They meet with darkness in the daytime. They grope at noonday as in night. But he saves the poor from the sword, from their mouth, and from the hand of the mighty. So the poor has hope, and iniquity stops their, her mouth. Behold, happy is the man whom God corrects. Therefore despise not you the chastening of the Almighty, for he makes sore and binds up, he wounds and his hands make whole. He shall deliver you in six troubles, yea, in the seventh there shall no evil touch you. In famine he shall redeem you from death, and in war from the power of the sword. You shall be hid from the scourge of the tongue, neither shall you be afraid of destruction when it comes. At destruction and famine you shall laugh, neither shall you be afraid of the beast of, of the earth. All right, so here he says these evil ones that are out there, they will meet or encounter darkness in the daylight. Now, this is kind of a strong statement. You know, he's saying they're basically blinded by God. All right, and they shall grope at noonday as in night. Now, this idea of groping at night, you know, if you've ever gotten up in the middle of the night and tried to find something, you know, and there's no light anywhere, even if you know the room really well, 
he still will trip or stumble or stub your toe. And this is what he's picturing, the evil ones. They won't see what's going on. God will totally confound their problem. You know, even in the daylight, they will not be able to accomplish what they want. Now, I would really wish that this was true all the time, but it's not. This is one of those places where he gives a statement and yes, God can do it, but does he always do it? And this is the question on this. He's assuming that God always, always blesses the right and nothing bad ever happens to those that are doing good. Now, we know from later on scriptures that, you know, the good and bad happen to the good, you know, to both. And he does not have that. He does not have that understanding. His understanding is that always good. And he says, he saves the poor from the sword, from, from their mouth, and from the hand of the mighty. So again, he's saying, Job, you've had everything taken from you. You had your health taken from you. If you were a good person, none of that stuff would have happened. Now, again, would be nice if that was a true statement. Yes, God delivers often for his righteous, but it is not a true statement that it always happens. And this is the statement. This is why Eliphaz, when, when God says uh, he's angry with him, these are the statements that he's making. He's misrepresenting God in his arguments. And God is going to say, you know, you're going to, you're, you're, you are accountable for your, for your bad decisions and your bad arguments. Um, and then he says, so the poor has hope or expectation and iniquity stops her mouth. The poor have hope in God. And that is a true statement. Our hope is in God. Our expectation is in God, even in hard times. And sometimes that's all we have is our hope in God. And I've, mentioned many times, you know, there's many times when I look at God and say, God, I know that all things work together for good, but I don't understand. I don't understand why these things are going, but I hope in you that your word is true. I'm going to trust that your word is true, even though I don't see how any of this can happen. And again, remember, Job doesn't have Romans 8.28. It's not going to be written for 4,000 years, you know, for, you know, 3,500 years from Job's time. And he does not have this hope that we have. He only understands what God has said, and he only understands what he knows or what he thinks he knows to be true, that good people get blessed and bad people get trouble. And so he's learning here, and this is going to be something. And again, remember, we've said this over and over again. God takes what we think we know about him and will stretch it. And say, do you really understand my word? Do you really understand my doctrine? And over and over again, God has stepped into my life and said, here, do you really believe that? Or is it, or is it something that's totally untrue? And let me show you that it's false. This is what's going on in Job's life. Now, we know that this is a battle. You know, Satan said, well, God, if you just make his life miserable, he's going to deny you. And God says, okay, let's, let's go for it. He needs to learn a lesson anyway, so you go ahead and do it. Now, he didn't tell Satan that he needs to learn a lesson. He goes, okay, you can go ahead and do it. Because God doesn't tell Satan everything he's thinking either. Satan thinks, I'm going to win this battle, and Job is going to curse God, and God is saying, Job's going to learn a great lesson about me. You know, and this is what happens even today. 
Satan comes along, thinks he's going to be making life miserable and making us curse God, and God is saying, okay, they need to, they need to learn a lesson about love, joy, peace, uh, patience, whatever it is we're needing to learn. So Satan, go ahead. You put somebody in their life that makes them, makes them have to learn to love or have patience or, or, or stretches them. I'm going to stretch them. You think you're winning, and I'm get, I get to teach them a lesson that I wanted to teach them anyway. You know, Satan is the pawn in God's hand and still keeps doing it. And you would have thought that after all these years, he would have learned <laughs> that he's just the pawn in God's hand. But somehow he keeps thinking, I'm going to win. I'm going to, I'm going to make God you know, lose his cool or whatever it might be. I don't no clue what he's trying to, to do. Um, but he says, the poor have hope. Verse 17 is a beautiful one. Behold, happy is the man whom God corrects. And this is interesting. He understands. God makes a correction. And you should be happy. Therefore, despise not you the chastening of the Almighty. Now, this is a true statement. But who is he applying it to? Job. Job, you're being corrected by God, so you should be happy that you're being corrected by God and quit despising his, his correction. Job does not deserve what's coming, what has come his way. He has done nothing bad enough to deserve correcting and chastening. And what is happening here is Eliphaz has judged Job guilty. We need to be very careful that we don't judge people guilty. Our job is to love other people, even in the midst of their hard time. It is the Holy Spirit and God's job to convict them to repentance. Now, we might mention to them some truth or talk to them and, and find out where they're at, but our job is not to convict anybody. Eliphaz has convicted Job. He's tried convicted Job in his mind. Job, you are guilty. I know you're guilty, and so therefore I don't even have to be nice to you. You, you need to just humble yourself before God and be happy that God is chastising you. And this is a very sad place because there are so many people that get that way. You're guilty and I'm going I'm to hammer you until you admit that you're wrong. This is what they're doing. Um, and it says, for God makes sore or causes pain and then he binds up, he wounds and his hands make whole. He shall deliver you in six troubles, yea, in seven there shall no evil touch you. So he says, God causes the pain in his, in his discipline, and then he wraps it up. Yeah, and this is something that should be true. If you're going to discipline something, buddy, there should be that binding. In, in management, we tell people, you praise somebody, you tear them down, and then you praise them. All right? Uh, if we have to discipline our children, there should be love that follows that discipline that's saying, I still love you, even though I had to give you this banking or take this privilege away or whatever it might be. And this is a true statement. God loves us and he will heal after he disciplines. And, you know, so again, we have this mix of truth and, and just not applied right. You know, and he's saying, God is hurting you. He's going to heal you, but, you know, just humble yourself, Job. You know, humble yourself because God will be the one that heals. And he says, and by the way, when you have six troubles, God will still help you out on the seventh one. All right? And seven is the number of perfection and, and completion. So he's saying, well, it'll take six, uh, seven trials to, to, to be complete. 
All right, now that's not necessarily a true statement, but this is the, the logic that he's using on here. Um, in famine, you shall be redeemed from, he, uh, shall be re, he shall redeem you from death, and in war from the power of the sword, he shall, you shall not be hid, you shall be hid from the scourge of the tongue, neither shall you be afraid of destruction when it comes. So he's going, in other words, famine will not touch the, the righteous. God will deliver from it. He will redeem. He, and he will keep you from the power of the sword. Well, in one sense, Job has already been kept from the power of the sword. He didn't die like everybody else in his family and the servants have di died. Uh, now, this next one would have been really nice. You, sh you shall be hid from the scourge of the tongue. Eliphaz has given it, given it to him up one side, down the other, not recognizing that he's the one that's doing the scourging. You know, the scourging of Job with his tongue. And if, you ever, if you've ever met somebody that is really good at this, you, know, you get done talking to them and you feel like you're about three inches tall because they have just ripped you with their tongue. Uh, my dad was that way sometimes, and he'd forget to build people up sometimes, you know, but he'd, he would leave you feeling like you were totally worthless and, and, and lower than low, and, you know, and this is what he's saying, that you, God will deliver you from that type of a person. And able to do this uh, problem, and that you shall, uh, neither shall you be afraid of destruction when it comes. Now, this is a good statement. If we're God's children... I'm not worried about destruction. I'm not worried about my life being taken away because God is in charge. I recognize he's sovereign. Now, I don't really appreciate it if somebody is being the destroyer, but uh, that is going to be the problem that he has here. At destruction and famine, you shall laugh, neither shall you be afraid of the beast of the earth. Now, when you think about this one, this is actually a good statement because this is Romans 8:28 in a mini in a in a mini mini presentation. He goes, "You can be happy when bad things are happening because you know that God is in charge." Okay, it's a valid statement. He's basically quoting Romans 8:28 without saying. He goes, "When when destruction and famine come, you shall laugh. You know, and neither will you fear these bad things. God's in charge." God's in charge. You know, it's amazing how he understands partially the truth as he's making these arguments to, to Job. All right. Verse 23 says, For you shall be in league with the stones of the field, and the beast of the air shall be at peace with you, and you shall know that your tabernacle shall be in peace, and that you shall visit, and you shall visit the habitation and shall not sin. You shall know also that your seed shall be great and your offspring as the grass of the earth. You shall come to, to the grave in a full age like, like as to a shock of corn coming into the season. Lo, this, we have searched it, so it is. Hear it and know you for your good. All right, so now he's kind of twisting this around to say his actual beliefs. Good things happen to good people. You should be blessed. And if you're struggling when you're, when you're a good person, you're, God's going to turn around. He's got a truth here, but he doesn't fully understand it. And it says, 
You shall be in league, or you'll have an alliance with the stones of the field, and with the beast of the field shall you be at peace. The, the animals won't come against you. The rocks won't be stopping you from, from harvesting. It's a good statement. It is a good statement. God is going to bless you. All right? Um, and you shall know your tabernacle shall be in peace. Your tent. Your tent, your, your dwelling will be at peace. And he uses the word shalom, which is a complete peace. And this is something that is, we've talked about this before, shalom, which is the, the, the uh, Hebrew word for peace, does not mean national peace, does not just mean peace with my own self. It's all peace. It's every bit of peace at the same time. I'm at national peace. My emotions are at peace. I'm at peace with my neighbors. I have, I'm at peace with God. And he says, your tabernacle shall be at peace. The animals will be at peace with you. Job, you'll be able to walk around the fields and the wild animals aren't going to be attacking you because you are a righteous man that God is protecting. Great statements. Great statements. All right. Um, you shall know also that your seed shall be great, your offspring as the grass of the earth. Now, this is not really a good thing to be telling somebody who's just lost nine children. Uh, Job, uh, your, your offspring are going to be great, and you're going you're to live to a long age, and you're going to have lots of kids. They're going to be like the grass. But he's also saying not necessarily Job, but the righteous will be this way. And he goes, Job, because you're not like this, there's a problem. All right? Your kids are all dead. You're all dead, and you're so sick, you don't look like you're going to live much longer. So what's he saying? Job, your kid should be alive. You should be healthy. You're not. He's implying to Job that you know, you're, not, you're not good and you're, and you're not there. And it says, You shall come to a grave in a full age like a shock of corn that comes in its season. So you're going to grow to be, you know, if you're righteous, you're going to live long. And again, this is the prosperity gospel. Do good, live long life, and be healthy. Be healthy, wealthy, and wise, and your kids will all be good, and you'll have lots of kids, and everything will be, be good. And then his last statement, lo this, we have searched it, we have examined it thoroughly, so it is, hear it, and know you it for your good. He has just laid out that righteousness, righteous people get blessed. He goes, we've looked it over, Job. We have examined it. We have checked it out. It is true. And he goes, hear it and know it for your good. Job, in other words, listen to us because we're right. And quit telling us how good you are because if you were good, all of these things would be applied to you. Hear it and know it for your good. If you would just repent, God, may, uh, Job, maybe God will repent, repent and turn, turn, turn a new leaf over for you. How would you like this for your advice? You are, you are terrible. You you're not being blessed. You're not wealthy. Your kids are all, you don't have lots of kids and all these things. So therefore, listen to us because we know that it's true that this is the way life is and it's not you. So pay attention to what we're saying because you're wrong. These are his friends telling him this, this whole thing. You know, Job, you're a really bad person. You need to, you need to get right with God. This is his statement to him. Uh, all of this long-winded statement boils down to a very clear statement. Job, good things happen to good people. Bad things have happened to you. Therefore, pay attention to us. You're not good. 
you know, quit telling us about how good you are because we know that good, bad things don't happen to good people, so you, there has to be a reason that all these bad things have happened to you, so pay attention to us because we have searched this out. We know for a fact that bad things don't happen to good people. And poor Job, you know, poor Job, you know, and we know, and like I say, we have the advantage. We know chapter one and chapter two. We know why all of this stuff's happening to him. Job does not understand why all this has happened. His friends don't understand why all of this is happening to them. And all of this bad doctrine is being piled up on him. And the problem is really that Job does believe this doctrine. He believes that bad things don't happen to good people. So he's sitting there with all this bad stuff happening to him, saying, God, I don't understand why I have lost everything when I have been righteous. And God does this to all of us when we come in there because he's saying, I am sovereign. I want to teach you something about me. And this is all of what's coming down this pike. The whole book is for, for Job to learn and for his friends to learn or his disciples, which we've talked about, that they had been taught by Job this information. So this is the way they were thinking. Good things happen to good people. Bad things happen to bad th people. If you are having bad things happen to you, therefore you are bad. And Job is going, no, I have been worshiping God. I have not, I don't deserve all of this. And they're going, Job, no, you are guilty because bad things don't happen to good people. So we know that you are guilty and we're going to hammer you until you admit that you did something wrong. So all of this is going on and Job and Eliphaz is basically concluding his argument with, you need to listen to us, Job. We know what's right, you, and we know you're guilty, so just admit what, what went wrong. Lord, we ask you to bless this time. Lord, help us as we deal with people that are going through hard times to be gentle with them and to represent your love, your grace for them, to be able to lift them up out of their trials and to show them that you love them no matter what and that you care and yes, correction can happen for bad, but also things can happen just because you allow them. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Listening friends, do you know God? Not just know about him. Today is the day to decide to become his child. God loves you and Jesus came to die for your sins. In Romans 3.23, we are told, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We all have sinned. God says... The penalty for sin is death. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. We sin and deserve death and hell. However, Romans 5.8 says, But God commended his love toward us, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God loves you so much, he died for us so that we can be forgiven and have eternal life. How do we do this? Romans 10:9-8 says that if you shall confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. For with the heart man believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Today is that day for you to come to God and truly know him. Do you know him? Do you want to know him? Pray in your own words like this, God, I know that I am a sinner and deserve punishment. I believe that Jesus died to pay my sins. Forgive me and help me to turn from my sins and to live for you. If you have asked this of God and truly believe you are God's child and part of, of his family, 
We encourage you to do these things. First, tell somebody that you are saved. Second, start reading the Bible each day. We recommend starting with Ephesians and then the Gospel of John. Find a good Bible teaching church. If this is your, your day of salvation, you can contact us and we will send you a booklet to get started on your new life and are available to help you with any questions you have about the Bible. You can contact us by email at office at chloridebaptistchurch.com or by mail at Chloride Baptist Church, P.O. Box 65, Chloride, Arizona 86431.